Chapter Fourteen B of The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln by Francis Fisher Brown. Chapter Fourteen B The Serious Aspect of National Affairs, The South in Rebellion, Treason at the National Capital, Lincoln's Farewell Visit to His Mother, The Old Sign, Lincoln and Herndon. The Last Day at Springfield, Farewell Speech to Friends and Neighbors, Off for the Capital, The Journey to Washington, Receptions and Speeches Along the Route, At Cincinnati, A Hitherto Unpublished Speech by Lincoln. During the months intervening between his election and his departure for Washington, Lincoln maintained a keen though quiet watchfulness of the threatening aspect of affairs at the National Capital and throughout the South. He was careful not to commit himself by needless utterances as to his future policy. But in all his demeanor, as a friend said, he displayed the firmness and determination, without the temper, of Jackson. In December following his election he wrote the following letters to his intimate friend, Hon. E. B. Washburn, then a member of Congress from Illinois. Springfield, Illinois, December 13, 1860 Honorable E. B. Washburn. My dear sir, your long letter received. Prevent, as far as possible, any of our friends from demoralizing themselves and our cause by entertaining propositions for compromise of any sort on the slavery extension. There is no possible compromise upon it but which puts us under again, and leaves us all our work to do over again. Whether it be a Missouri line, or Eli Thayer's popular sovereignty, it is all the same. Let either be done, and immediately filibustering and extending slavery recommences. On that point hold firm, as with a chain of steel. Yours as ever, A. Lincoln. Springfield, Illinois, December 21, 1860. Hon. E. B. Washburn. My dear sir, Last night I received your letter giving an account of your interview with General Scott, and for which I thank you. Please present my respects to the General, and tell him confidentially that I shall be obliged to him to be as well prepared as he can to either hold or retake the forts, as the case may require, at and after the inauguration. Yours as ever, A. Lincoln. The southern states, led on by South Carolina, which formally severed its connection with the Union November 17, 1860, only eleven days after Lincoln's election, were preparing to dissolve their alliance with the free states. Mississippi passed the Ordinance of Secession January 9, 1861. Florida followed on the 10th, Alabama on the 11th, Georgia on the 19th, Louisiana on the 25th and Texas on the first day of February. The plans of the seceders went on, unmolested by the Buchanan administration. Southerners in the Cabinet and in Congress conspired to deplete the resources of the government, leaving it helpless to contest the assumptions of the revolted states. The Treasury was deliberately bankrupted. The ships of the Navy were banished to distant ports. The northern arsenals were rifled to furnish arms for the seceded states. 
the united states forts and armaments on the southern coast were delivered into the hands of the enemy with the exception of fort sumter which was gallantly held by major robert anderson while this system of bold and unscrupulous treachery was carried on by men in the highest places of trust the chief executive of the nation remained a passive spectator the south was in open rebellion and the north was powerless to interfere the weeks prior to the inauguration of the new administration dragged slowly along each day adding fresh cause for anxiety and alarm amidst these portentous scenes lincoln watching them from a distance maintained his calm and vigilant attitude no one knew better than he the significance of these ominous events that were taking place at the nation's capital and in the disaffected states but there was nothing he could do about them his time for action had not yet come he said little but enough to show unmistakably what he thought of the situation and what course he had resolved upon to meet it as early as december seventeenth eighteen sixty a little more than a month after his election in writing to thurlow weed he said my opinion is that no state can in any way get out of the union without the consent of the other states and that it is the duty of the president to run the machine as it is he had been made the pilot of the ship of state and his duty and purpose were to save the vessel footnote on the very day of lincoln's arrival in washington he said to some prominent men who had called upon him at his hotel as the country has placed me at the helm of the ship i'll try to steer her through End footnote. upon this mighty task were concentrated all the powers of his intellect and will and through all the desperate voyage that followed he never wavered or faltered in his course from the time of his supreme resolve made in the quiet of his country home to the hour when from fearful trip the victor ship came in with object won but with her more than heroic but now victorious captain fallen cold and dead upon her deck as the winter wore away and the time for lincoln's inauguration as president drew near he began making preparation for leaving the familiar scenes where his life had thus far been spent early in february he made a parting visit to his relatives in coles county to whom in this hour of grave trial and anxiety his heart turned with fresh yearning he spent a night at charleston where his cousin dennis hanks and mrs colonel chapman a daughter of dennis resided we are told that the people crowded by hundreds to see him and he was serenaded by both the string and brass bands of the town but declined making a speech the following morning he passed on to farmington to the home of his beloved stepmother who was living with her daughter mrs moore mr lamon relates that the meeting between him and the old lady was of a most affectionate and tender character she fondled him as her own abe and he her as his own mother then lincoln and colonel chapman drove to the house of john hall who lived on the old lincoln farm where abe split the celebrated rails and fenced in the little clearing in eighteen thirty thence they went to the spot where lincoln's father was buried the grave was unmarked and utterly neglected lincoln said he wanted to have it enclosed and a suitable tombstone erected and gave the necessary instructions for this purpose we then returned says colonel chapman to farmington where we found a large crowd of citizens nearly all old acquaintances waiting to see him his reception was very enthusiastic and seemed to gratify him very much 
After taking dinner at his stepsister's, Mrs. Moore's, he returned to Charleston. Our conversation during the trip was mostly concerning family affairs. On the way down to Farmington, Mr. Lincoln spoke to me of his stepmother in the most affectionate manner, said she had been his best friend, and that no son could love a mother more than he loved her. He also told me of the condition of his father's family at the time he married his stepmother, and of the change she made in the family, and of the encouragement he had received from her. He spoke of his father, and related some amusing incidents of the bulldogs biting the old man on his return from New Orleans of the old man's escape when a boy from an Indian who was shot by his uncle Mordecai, etc. He spoke of his uncle Mordecai as being a man of very great natural gifts. At Charleston we found the house crowded by people wishing to see him. The crowd finally became so great that it was decided to hold a public reception at the town hall that evening at seven o'clock. Until then Lincoln wished to be left with relatives and friends. At the town hall large numbers of people from the town and surrounding country, irrespective of party, called to see him. His reception by his old acquaintances was very gratifying to him. A characteristic anecdote showing Lincoln's friendship and love of old associations is told among those relating to his last days at Springfield. When he was about to leave for Washington he went to the dingy little law office, sat down on the couch, and said to his law partner, Herndon, Billy. You and I have been together nearly twenty years, and have never passed a word. Will you let my name stay on the old sign till I come back from Washington?" The tears started to Mr. Herndon's eyes. He put out his hand. "'Mr. Lincoln,' said he, "'I will never have any other partner while you live.' And to the day of the assassination all the doings of the firm were in the name of Lincoln and Herndon. Governor Bross of Illinois relates that he was with Lincoln at Springfield on the day before he left for Washington. We were walking slowly to his home from some place where we had met, and the condition and prospects of the country, and his vast responsibility in assuming the position of President, were the subjects of his thoughts. These were discussed with a breadth and anxiety full of that pathos peculiar to Mr. Lincoln in his thoughtful moods. He seemed to have a thorough prescience of the dangers through which his administration was to pass. No president, he said, had ever had before him such vast and far-reaching responsibilities. He regarded war, long, bitter, and dreadful, as almost sure to come. He distinctly and reverently placed his hopes for the result in the strength and guidance of him on whom Washington relied in the darkest hours of the Revolution. He would take the place to which Providence and his countrymen had called him, and do the best he could for the integrity and the welfare of the Republic. For himself, he scarcely expected ever to see Illinois again. On the morning of the 11th of February, 1861, Lincoln left his home in Springfield for the scene where he was to spend the most anxious, toilsome, and painful years of his life. An elaborate program had been prepared for his journey to Washington, which was to conduct him through the principal cities of Indiana, Ohio, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Maryland and consume much of the time intervening before the 4th of March. Special trains, preceded by pilot engines, were prepared for his accommodation. He was accompanied at his departure by his wife and three sons, and a party of friends, including Governor Yates, ex-Governor Moore, Dr. W. M. Wallace, his brother-in-law, N. B. Judd, O. H. Browning, Ward H. Lamon, David Davis, 
Colonel E. E. Ellsworth, and John M. Hay, and J. G. Nicolay, the two latter to be his private secretaries. Mr. Lamon thus graphically describes the incidents of his leave-taking. It was a gloomy day. Heavy clouds floated overhead, and a cold rain was falling. Long before eight o'clock a great mass of people had collected at the railway station. At precisely five minutes before eight, Mr. Lincoln, preceded by Mr. Wood, emerged from a private room in the depot building, and passed slowly to the car, the people falling back respectfully on either side, and as many as possible shaking his hands. Having reached the train, he ascended the rear platform, and facing about to the throng which had closed around him, drew himself up to his full height, removed his hat, and stood for several seconds in profound silence. His eye roved sadly over that sea of upturned faces, as if seeking to read in them the sympathy and friendship which he never needed more than then. There was an unusual quiver in his lip, and a still more unusual tear on his shriveled cheek. His solemn manner, his long silence, were as full of melancholy eloquence as any words he could have uttered. What did he think of? Of the mighty changes which had lifted him from the lowest to the highest estate on earth? Of the weary road which had brought him to this lofty summit? Of his poor mother lying beneath the tangled underbrush in a distant forest? Of that other grave in the quiet Concord Cemetery? Whatever the character of his thoughts, it is evident that they were retrospective and sad. To those who were anxiously waiting to catch his words, it seemed long until he had mastered his feelings sufficiently to speak. At length he began, in a husky voice, and slowly and impressively delivered his farewell to his neighbors. Imitating his example, many in the crowd stood with heads uncovered in the fast-falling rain. Abraham Lincoln spoke none but true and sincere words, and none more true and heartfelt ever fell from his lips than these, so laden with pathos, with humility, with a craving for the sympathy of his friends and the people, and for help above and beyond all earthly power and love. My friends, no one not in my position can realize the sadness I feel at this parting. To this people I owe all that I am. Here I have lived more than a quarter of a century. Here my children were born, and here one of them lies buried. I know not how soon I shall see you again. I go to assume a task more difficult than that which has devolved upon any other man since the days of Washington. He never would have succeeded, except for the aid of divine providence, upon which he at all times relied. I feel that I cannot succeed without the same divine blessing which sustained him, and on the same Almighty Being I place my reliance for support, and I hope that you, my friends, will all pray that I may receive that divine assistance, without which I cannot succeed, but with which success is certain. Again, I bid you an affectionate farewell. The route chosen for the journey to Washington, as has been stated, was a circuitous one. It seems to have been Lincoln's desire to meet personally the people of the great northern states upon whose devotion and loyalty he prophetically felt he must depend for the salvation of the Republic. Everywhere he met the warmest and most generous greetings from the throngs assembled at the railway stations in the various cities through which he passed 
At Indianapolis, where the first important halt was made, cannon announced the arrival of the party, and a royal welcome was accorded the distinguished traveller. In this, as in the other cities at which he stopped, Lincoln made a brief address to the people. His remarks were well considered and temperate, his manner was serious, his expressions thoughtful, and full of feeling. He entreated the people to be calm and patient, to stand by the principles of liberty inwrought into the fabric of the Constitution, to have faith in the strength and reality of the government, and faith in his purpose to discharge his duties honestly and impartially. He referred continually to his trust in the Almighty Ruler of the universe to guide the nation safely out of its present peril and perplexity. "'I judge,' he said at Columbus, "'that all we want is time and patience, and a reliance in that God who has never forsaken his people.' Again he said, "'Let the people on both sides keep their self-possession.' And just as other clouds have cleared away in due time, so will this. And this great nation shall continue to prosper as heretofore." Alluding more definitely to his purposes for the future, he declared, "'I shall do all that may be in my power to promote a peaceful settlement of all our difficulties. The man does not live who is more devoted to peace than I am. None who would do more to preserve it but it may be necessary to put the foot down firmly." At the conclusion of Lincoln's speech at Columbus a tremendous crowd surged forward to shake his hand. Says Dr. Holland, "'Every man in the crowd was anxious to wrench the hand of Abraham Lincoln. He finally gave both hands to the work, with great good nature. To quote one of the reports of the occasion, people plunged at his arms with frantic enthusiasm, and all the infinite variety of shakes, from the wild and irrepressible pump-handle movement to the dead grip, was executed upon the devoted Dexter and sinister of the President. Some glanced at his face as they grasped his hand, others invoked the blessings of heaven upon him, others affectionately gave him their last gasping assurance of devotion. Others, bewildered and furious, with hats crushed over their eyes, seized his hands in a convulsive grasp, and passed on as if they had not the remotest idea who, what, or where they were. The President at last escaped, and took refuge in the Governor's residence, although he held a levee at the State House in the evening, where in a more quiet way he met many prominent citizens. At Cincinnati, where Lincoln had had so distasteful an experience a few years before. A magnificent ovation greeted him. The scene is described by one who witnessed it. Hon. William Henry Smith, at that time a resident of Cincinnati. It was on the 13th of February that Mr. Lincoln reached the Queen City. The day was mild for midwinter, but the sky was overcast with clouds, emblematic of the gloom that filled the hearts of the unnumbered thousands who thronged the streets and covered the housetops. Lincoln rode in an open carriage, standing erect with uncovered head, and steadying himself by holding on to a board fastened to the front part of the vehicle. A more uncomfortable ride than this over the bouldered streets of Cincinnati cannot well be imagined. Perhaps a journey over the broken roads of eastern Russia, in a tarantass, would secure to the traveller as great a degree of discomfort. Mr. Lincoln bore it with characteristic patience. His face was very sad, but he seemed to take a deep interest in everything. It was not without due consideration that the President-elect touched on the border of a slave state on his way to the capital. 
In his speech in reply to the mayor of Cincinnati, recognizing the fact that among his auditors were thousands of Kentuckians, he addressed them directly, calling them friends, brethren. He reminded them that when speaking in Fifth Street Market Square in 1859, he had promised that when the Republicans came into power they would treat the Southern or slaveholding people as Washington, Jefferson, and Madison treated them, that they would interfere with their institutions in no way, but abide by all and every compromise of the Constitution, and recognize and bear in mind always that you have as good hearts in your bosoms as other people, or as we claim to have, and treat you accordingly. Then to emphasize this, he said, in a passage omitted by Mr. Raymond and all other biographers of Lincoln, And now, fellow citizens of Ohio, have you who agree in political sentiment with him who now addresses you, ever entertained other sentiments towards our brethren of Kentucky than those I have expressed to you? Loud and repeated cries of no, no. If not, then why shall we not, as heretofore, be recognized and acknowledged as brethren again? living in peace and harmony, one with another. Cries of, We will. I take your response as the most reliable evidence that it may be so, along with other evidence trusting to the good sense of the American people, on all sides of all rivers in America, under the providence of God, who has never deserted us, that we shall again be brethren, forgetting all parties, ignoring all parties. End of chapter 14b Recording by Bill Borst